Hello. Welcome to another episode of Southern Hospitality. I'm Josh. And I'm Blake. And we have some shorter stories for you this time. Last time the episode went quite long, so we decided we would pick some shorter stories to make up for this week. You say that now, but we might get to the very end and it ends up being like 59 minutes instead of an hour and five minutes like last week. Was it only an hour and five? It was something like that. Well, it wasn't overly long. I mean, it was long, but compared to the rest, it was on par. It was within 20 minutes of our other episodes. Okay, so that's not that horrible. But they are shorter, a little bit lighter stories. And mine is one that is nowhere near as well known as the story I covered last week, The Bell Witch. The people that are tuning into this on iTunes or Spotify are going to look down at the timer and it's going to be like, that's the exact same time as it was last week. What are they talking about? Because we don't know yet because we're actively recording it. Well, I guess we'll see at the end of this recording. We're making the call now. It's going to be shorter. Mine will definitely be half the time because it's half the pages. But just as high a quality. Yes, exactly. Just as interesting. Well, I went first last week on my story, so why don't you go first this week? Okay, sounds good. This week, I am taking us to a place that we have already been before. It's Savannah, but it's really hard to avoid because there's so much cool haunted stuff there. It is the oldest city in Georgia, if anyone paid attention to my last, uh, (laughs) not my last, my, well, the only time I've talked about Savannah, actually. Was that? That wasn't the last one. It was two episodes ago. I talked about the Marshall House in Savannah. That's right. That's right. Well, we have to go back to Savannah because I was scrolling Reddit late one night and saw a very interesting post. This week, I will be discussing the Savannah Hilton Head International Airport in Georgia. In 2017, it reached a record at handling 2,462,881 commercial airline passengers, positioning itself as one of the most important airports in the USA and the second busiest in Georgia. The first, of course, being the Atlanta International Airport. I think Atlanta, last I heard, is the busiest in the United States. Really? By traffic. I believe so, yeah. I thought LAX was probably up there. I don't think. I'm I'm pretty sure Atlanta usually gets the busiest. LAX is just like so unorganized. I feel like it always feels the busiest, but Atlanta has a ridiculous amount of layovers from like Flights everywhere in the world, even layover in Atlanta through Delta, especially. Interesting. Now that we're on it, I actually uh, was looking up airport statistics by coincidence while I was traveling <laughs> recently, and the Raleigh-Durham airport, where we live in North Carolina, so I looked up the Raleigh-Durham airport, and it got about 11 million travelers that went through it last year. Wow. Yeah, and the Cincinnati airport, where I also flew recently, had about 7 million visitors. No clue what Atlanta has, but... Some fun airport stats. That is pretty fun and surprising that you have those stats while I'm talking about airports today. Fun little nugget there. In the midst of all the arrivals and departures, jumbo jet fumes and takeoff noise, a strange ghost story haunts the vast corridors of the Savannah slash Hilton Head International Airport. Pilots and other staff members often talk about ghosts appearing on the runway, but these claims remain in the area of superstition. In fact, regional airline captain Lisa Rudy, I think, wrote on All Things Arrow blog about this legend. These are her words. It's said that if you are coming into land after sundown, two figures will appear just along the north side of the runway. Savannah Hilton Head International Airport may be the only runway in the world that has gravestones embedded in the runway. 
at least the only one still open. Curiously enough, another Georgia airport once had headstones in the runway as well. The Mathis Airport in Forsyth County, Georgia, also had graves and headstones embedded in the runway until it closed in 2014. What is it with Georgia airports and having headstones in their runways? I can't wait to hear how many ATL has in their airport. Thousands of graves under that runway? I don't think so. Only Delta would know. So some of the history that I'll cover is that a lot of area that was taken to create a large amount of actual airports was farmland that was seized from families. Not seized, but like purchased from families who had worked the area for a long time. It was like uh, where the government buys land to create public projects on type of thing. I think so. It was right around the ending of, or right before World War II started, there was a lot of unemployment. So the president was trying to get a lot of jobs going by having big structures and architecture built. Yeah. A little history about the first Savannah Municipal Airport. It was opened on September 20th, 1929, with the beginning of air service between New York City and Miami by Eastern Air Express. The airport became a part of the Eastern Air Transport Incorporated Air Route on December 2nd, 1931, when Ida Hoynes, daughter of the mayor, Thomas Hoynes, broke a bottle of Savannah River water on a propeller blade of an 18-passenger Curtis Condor II, which is a biplane and bomber aircraft, so it's like a small little plane. Hmm. A trolley car was used as the first terminal at Hunter Field in the mid-1930s. The airport was named Hunter Municipal Airfield during Savannah Aviation Week in May 1940 in honor of Lieutenant Colonel Frank O'Driscoll Hunter, a native of Savannah and a World War I flying ace. He was deemed an ace because on his first combat patrol, Hunter downed two German planes and landed safely despite being wounded. By the end of the war, he had downed nine German planes to his credit, earning him the recognition of ace. In 1940, the U.S. Army Air Corps proposed to take over Hunter Field if a war started. While commercial airlines continued to use Hunter Field, the city decided to build a second municipal airport in response to the increased military presence. The Dotson Farm was located on the outskirts of Savannah in an area called Cherokee Hills. In the wake of World War II, the farmland was chosen as a takeoff spot for B-24 Liberators and B-17, or Flying Fortresses, that were campaigning across the Atlantic Ocean. The spot was chosen because prior to the war, the bulk of both civilian and military air travel revolved around the makeshift runway in Savannah. It was also one of the highest elevations in the county. The parcel of land the government had its eye on was used as a family cemetery. It included more than a hundred graves where family members, as well as enslaved people, were buried. Catherine and Richard Dotson were buried there in 1877 and 1884. The Dotsons' great-grandchildren negotiated with the federal government and struck an agreement to build the airstrip and have the graves and their contents moved to Bonadventure Cemetery in Savannah. But the Dotsons had one condition which even the U.S. Army had to follow through with. They demanded that the graves of Catherine and Richard Dotson remain undisturbed. The Army honored the deal, and the graves of the original landowners remained in the vicinity of the military airport, which was a 600-acre area of land at the time. 
The graves of Richard and Catherine Dotson, along with two beloved relatives, Daniel Houston and John Dotson, remain undisturbed next to the airport's most active runway. So this is uh, what I was telling you that I would come back to with land being not really seized, but like farmland being bought for like large structures such as airports. Yeah. And it's actually a lot more common than people think. The vast farmlands of the past often included cemeteries for family members, and once the great expansion of airfields, both military and civilian, occurred in the United States by the mid-20th century, the fields largely owned by farming families were the most suitable for building terminals, hubs, and runways. That makes sense. Big open spaces. Exactly. Family cemeteries around the U.S. met a similar fate to the Dotson's plot of land. I just don't think they all... We're trying to keep bodies there. I hope not. Yeah. Construction of a new airfield began under a Works Progress Administration project, which is the thing where they were trying to get unemployed Americans to have jobs around the beginning of World War II, like before the U.S. was involved. Three 36,000-foot runways were constructed running north-south, east-west, and northeast-southwest. In 1942, before the completion of this new airfield, the U.S. Army Air Corps decided to take over the new facility and start additional construction to carry out its mission. It named the airfield Chatham Field, and during early 1942, after the Pearl Harbor attack, Savannah AAB became a base for several anti-submarine groups and squadrons of the XX or 1010, I'm not sure, but the XX Bomber Command and later Army Air Force's Anti-Submarine Command with a mission to patrol the Atlantic coast, locate, and attack German U-boats. I thought that was interesting. It is. Imagining uh, German U-boats attacking the Atlantic coast of the U.S. Yeah. Throughout 1942, light bomber and dive bomber groups received combat training at Savannah AAB before being deployed to the combat zones overseas. At the end of the war, Savannah AAB was used as a separation center for the discharge and furlough of service members returning from Europe. In June 1946, the airfield was returned to the city of Savannah. From 1946 to 1949, many of its buildings were leased to industrial plants. Some of the buildings were used as apartment houses, and an orphanage was located in the former commanding officer's quarters. The University of Georgia established an extension of its campus on part of the old base as well. Side note, unfortunately, I could not find more information about the orphanage. I definitely looked because I thought that would probably have some good ghost stories, but there was no information mm, I could that's find. That's unfortunate. I know. In 1948, Chatham Army Airfield was turned over to the Georgia Air National Guard, and the airport was renamed Travis Field in honor of Savannah native Brigadier Brigadier? Brigadier. <laughs> is that how you say it? I have no clue. What I don't know what the word is yet. Uh, I'm not sure. I'll go with brigadier. Brig brigadier? Brigadier? Brigadier. I have no clue. I can't. I'd have to look at it on paper. Do you want to see it? No, it's fine. It'll just okay. go with it. All right. I hope this is right. All the fans can correct you. <laughs> Everybody's going to hate me. Mama, stop correcting me, mom. <laughs> Uh, Brigadier General Robert F. Travis. He was killed in a crash of a B-29 bomber near Fairfield Susan AFB in California and his brother, Colonel William Travis. 
To accommodate the airlines, Travis Field received a new control tower and an airline terminal in the former base theater. In 1950, the first commercial flight from Travis Field was made by Delta Flight 371 with eight passengers to Atlanta. In 1958, work began on a new airline terminal. In 1962, an additional extension brought the east-west runway's length to 9,000 feet. The jet age arrived in 1965 when Delta Airlines introduced the Douglas DC-910 flights. During the 1980s, when the Savannah Hilton Head International Airport started building its extension to runway 10, the Datsun descendants were contacted and once again, the family refused to move Richard and Catherine from the gravesite, as their wish to forever stay buried on the land they worked so hard to cultivate. Since it is impossible to move the remains without consent of the next of kin, the people from the Savannah Hilton Head Airport had to pave over the graves in order to build their runway. This is how the <laughs> airport paid its respects and reached a consensus with the Dotson family by embedding the two tombstones into the runway, which can still be seen along the north side of the strip. That's kind of cool. I don't know if it feels like they're paying respects that much to me, but uh, I guess at least they gave them tombstones. I thought they were just paved over and that's it. Whenever you see it from afar, it kind of looks like patches that were done in the runway because they're a lighter color than the surrounding cement. Yeah. So it's not the most glamorous so it's not like a star on the hollywood walk of fame or anything like that no it's just a different color of concrete it's not even like something fancy does it say their names and stuff i think it does off to the side but i don't think that on the runway it's etched in yeah there were a few comments online that i thought were pretty funny where this one person commented what do you mean i landed on someone's graves that's why that place has always freaked me out. And someone else commented, it brings new meaning to not over my dead body. Hmm. <laughs> I also saw in the news that uh, Spirit Airlines is going to make that their hub. What? Really? No, I just made that up. Oh. <laughs> what better airport to make their hub than one with bodies under that runway? Fair. Spirit Airlines. <laughs> <laughs> that would make sense. While all but these four of the Dotson family graves are gone, they're not forgotten. The Savannah Airport's website has a page dedicated to these graves and the history of the Dotson family and the airport. So if you ever fly in or out of Savannah, keep your eyes fixed on the runway. You might just spy the last of the Dotson family headstones. And maybe some ghosts. And maybe some ghosts. They say that their figures appear standing on the runway at sunset. Hmm. Maybe they used to like to watch the sunsets together. So I have to book a sunset flight to uh, catch a glimpse. Yeah. That's interesting. It's more of a weird story this week. Yeah, I thought it was pretty weird, but that is not the end of my story. Oh, okay. Well, Because there were two airports that had graves embedded in oh, yeah, them that's right. in Georgia, which was convenient. Right. So I figured I'd go ahead and cover the other one as well. Okay, go for it. Thanks. So the next airport is Mathis Airport. Ten slabs of marble were located on the runway of Mathis Airport, marking up an entire family's burial plot. Believe it or not, the family were not avid aviation fans, and the people buried there were not even around to see the first airplane fly. Mathis Airport was founded in 1959 as a privately owned and public use airport. The site of the airport included a family cemetery, formerly belonging to the Anglin family. 
The family members originally agreed with the original owners of the airport to lay the headstones flat so they would not be in the way of planes, knocked over by winds from the planes, and kind of out of the way. The headstones were located to the left of the runway to ensure that planes were not running over their loved ones. That's kind of them. <laughs> I mean, it's the least they could do. It's like, we're going to put them right in the middle of the runway, but we're like, eh, might be a safety hazard. Mm. In 1979, L.G. Mathis and Patrick McLaughlin began Mathis Air Park as a fly-in residential community adjacent to the airport as a separate entity with a taxiway to the runway. In 1985, L.G. Mathis sold half ownership of the airport to his brother, C.J. In 1990, C.J., bought the remaining half of the airport, and in 92, he sold the airport to Seven Oaks LLC. In 95, Seven Oaks sold the airport back to CJ, and in June of 2004, CJ sold the airport a total of 10 and a half acres and an adjacent subdivision lot with three and a half acres in the air park to Flyboy Aviation Properties. Flyboy. <laughs> Flyboy. That's pretty funny. So this airport has changed hands a lot, kind of back yeah. and forth with the same people, but it's still changed hands a lot. In 2004, under the ownership and management of Flyboy or Joe Voyles, it expanded the airport in many ways, aka he tore down the original wooden hangars and center block FBO, which stands for fixed base operator. I had to look it up, but I didn't look into what that structure means. I'm sure somebody listening that's a pilot will know or works at an airport. I have no clue. <laughs> I figured it probably wasn't that important to the general. Probably not. <laughs> so he did add 17 new metal T hangers. He built a new clubhouse, widened and lengthened the asphalt runway, asphalted taxiways, and hangar aprons. The larger runway actually covered some of the nine gravestones from the England family cemetery. Because Georgia law prohibits the relocation or removal of gravestones, the gravestones were incorporated into the runway. Like little marble tiles through asphalt, the headstones were paved around before the family was even able to provide consent. Like, I don't think they were contacted whatsoever. He didn't pave over them, though. He just, like, kind of went around them like they're still there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's... At least he didn't go straight up over them. That's true. I guess that could have been worse. And you would think that's where the story ends, but there's a little bit more to this strange tale. Okay. <laughs> I'll be here. Okay. In 2013, in the midst of bankruptcy, Joe Boyles had arranged to sell the land to a developer for residential use. Filings in the bankruptcy court indicated that Flyboy Aviation was to sell the airport property for $1.4 million, and the paperwork explicitly stated, there are no cemeteries graves, burial grounds, or historic artifacts within the property. A few days later in July, a member of the local historical society reported to the police that Joe Voyles had removed the gravestones that had been part of the runway, which is highly illegal as one of the family members had served in the Indian War and another in the War of 1812, and in the state of Georgia, it's horribly illegal to mess with the graves of service people. Voyles said it was all a misunderstanding as he had removed the headstones to restore them. The news segment I found online about these moved headstones showed the news anchor going into Voyle's home, where he had the headstones all neatly laid out on a table in his garage. 
The sheriff showed up while the news team was recording with Voyles and took him into custody. The family asked Voyles why had he so hastily filled in the holes in the runway with asphalt if he intended to restore and return the headstones. Voyles ended up with two misdemeanor charges of criminal trespassing. The Anglin family decided against pressing additional, more serious charges. Even with all of this going on, the developer agreed to go forward with the transaction and also agreed to preserve the gravesites. The issue of the Mathis Airport gravestones was discussed in a December episode of the Science Channel TV series, What on Earth? (laughs) Quick side note, I was not able to watch this, but totally will. It's currently on Discovery Plus or Max streaming and available to purchase on Prime. In October 2014, the airport was completely closed and all hangars removed. The land was planned to be converted into homes. And as of 2020, satellite imagery shows the houses built and the graves have been preserved in a green area between two of the homes. That's good they didn't build the houses right on the homes because that was uh, the movie Poltergeist, I think, right? Yeah. They put the pool in right over the gravestones. Yeah. Well, they were digging the pool and all the bodies started floating up in it. They built like a whole housing development on top of graves. Exactly. But I don't know if I would want to purchase a brand new home next to a graveyard anywhere. Yeah. I guess not. It would creep me out real bad. People do it. Apparently. I actually found the developer's website and all of the plots had sold. The so. grave plots? No. <laughs> the house houses, I suppose, oh, okay. is a better way to put yeah. it. But yeah, all the homes had sold and mm. it was a popular little community. I guess it doesn't bother people. I guess not. It would bother me. So at least the developer left the graves alone. Several Mathis Airpark homeowners still have airplane hangars on their property and a shared taxiway, but not much room to take off anymore. And as for the headstones, they were given to the family, the Anglins, for safekeeping until they could be put back where they belong. And I'm pretty sure that they have been put back now. This article was from a little while Mm, ago. That's good. So yeah. Cool. All the airports with graves and dead bodies under the runways. Isn't that nice? Makes me want to hop on a plane and fly somewhere. I don't know Not about there. that one. Now I have to do a story about the airplanes that have haunted parts. Haunted parts? Yeah, like if an like airplane... Like the recent Boeing flights that uh, doors have been falling off. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> Some haunted bolts that just uh, go missing somehow. Sometimes they would take pieces from airplanes that crashed and use those parts in new build airplanes. And they would have ghost pilots or stewardesses or like passengers show up on the flights. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I wonder how many other airports in the U.S. have uh, bodies under them or ghosts. Those are the only two that have them under the runway. Hmm. Isn't the Denver airport the one that's really weird and haunted with the giant horse statue outside? It might be. I do remember seeing some TV show we watched about the haunted airport and it was like a major airport i think it was denver it's not in the south we'll have to take a little yeah detour (laughs) yes exactly the horse is called blucifer and i always thought he was Hmm. really interesting so i wanted to go and see the horse that guards that airport whichever one it may be i'm pretty sure it's denver but i don't know well i enjoyed your runway of death story (laughs) i am glad you enjoyed my runway of death no ghosts though right or just maybe a ghost on one of them yeah it's more of a creepy creepy happening in georgia yeah exactly some weird airports down there exactly and both only happening in georgia which is super odd yeah just a weird policy maybe 
I should just move graves a little more often in that case or find another spot for the airport. Or, I don't know. Maybe not be so passive about their family members being taken off next to you. Maybe. Or the people could just be like, maybe more apt to want to move their family's graves instead of being like, eh, just pave over it and it'll be fine. Yeah. I guess it's a good thing they don't have worse hauntings because you think that would yeah, make you, a, a person mad. You think it close. would be more haunted having planes go over their graves all the time? Yeah. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe it was too loud and they wanted to move on. Could be. They're like, I can't take it here. I was going to haunt the airport, but it's just so loud. That is what I picture. Well, you want me to jump into my story? Yeah. What you got for us this week? So my story is taking us to somewhere new this week, Ooh. and that is West Virginia. Ah. First story in West Virginia, I do believe. I believe you are correct. Yeah. And it's actually in a small town in West Virginia called Princeton. And if you look on a map... Princeton, West Virginia is located in the southern part of the state, which is kind of near the Virginia border. It's not far from that national park in West Virginia, actually. The New River Gorge National Park, it's pretty close to it, like Hmm. maybe an hour's drive, maybe less. So it's in that general area, a very small rural town. And this town is unique because it's home to a haunted amusement park that goes by the name of Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. Interesting. And if you're interested, I actually have a promo code for 20% off tickets for the water park and a free pass to the Ferris wheel. It's still operating? No. Okay. It's shut down. I just thought it'd be funny to say that, see if people got interested. I got really confused. I don't actually have a promo code, and if I did, you'd be very disappointed when you got there to see it. Everyone would be demanding refunds from you. Yeah. So the park has been abandoned for decades at this point, completely shut down, although you can visit there now and tour it as like a haunted tour, but you're not going to get on any rides. Uh, the closest they have to a water park is a pond, so you'd be very disappointed with that promo. So the only thrills are the haunted things? Yes. Ah. All right. So I'm going to get into the history of the place. So before the amusement park opened in 1926, the land in this area was home to Native Americans and early English settlers. During the late 1700s, a settler by the name of Mitchell Clay brought his family out here and established an 800-acre farm where they raised 14 children. Wow. And as you can imagine, during that time period, he was one of the earlier English settlers in the area. Uh, The Native Americans in the area were not very happy with settlers coming there, taking over their land and starting families where, you know, the land was the Native Americans' land. So they're not happy about that. So there was a lot of conflicts between Native Americans and the English settlers at the time. I feel like I heard a little bit about this story, not to step on any toes, but did they choose to settle on a sacred land area? I'm not going to drop any spoilers Uh, yet. We'll see. Sorry, sorry. Save it for later. Okay. So, yeah, the the Native Americans weren't happy with the settlers moving out onto their land and establishing communities and all that. So there were a lot of conflicts in general between settlers and the Native Americans. And one of these conflicts struck the Clay family in 1783. One day, Mitchell Clay was out hunting, and while he was gone, three of his children were murdered by members of the Shawnee tribe who inhabited the area. And from what I read, uh, two of the children were killed and scalped at their home. And another was kidnapped, taken to sort of a nearby town. I I read it's somewhere in like current day, like southeast Ohio, so not too far away. But they took one of the kids to that town and burned him at the stake. So pretty brutal all around. Yeah. And in an act of revenge, Mitchell Clay, along with a few other landowners in the area, sought out and killed several members of the Shawnee tribe that murdered his children. Clay marked the grave for his children in 1783, and on August 14, 1937, a headstone was erected by the group called the Daughters of the American Revolution, Hmm. 
And this was done as a way to permanently mark the grave because he'd put like a temporary grave marker on their family property. And if you visit the park today, the headstone still exists on the property. I'm not sure there's any any of the bodies are there or not, but there's a headstone to commemorate them. I'm not uncertain. Though. I mean, there could be bodies there, actually. I'm, I'm just not sure if they're actually there or if they were just commemorated. Hmm. Okay, so now we're going to hop in the old DeLorean and fast forward to 1926. And this is when local entrepreneur Conley Snydow Sr. could be saying his last name wrong. It's when he purchased the land and began developing the amusement park. I saw somewhere that he purchased the land for 25 cents an acre. Wow, that sounds like a bargain. Seems like a deal, yeah. And I was thinking, I guess all those memes I've been seeing about how you know grandparents are like, I bought my house for a sack of potatoes. There might be some truth to that. <laughs> mm. If you could like travel back in time with a roll of quarters, you'd be a boss in the real estate market. <laughs> it's not even that far, 1926. Like, You're right. It's a while, but not considering 25 cents an acre, that's... Not it's even a full hundred years ago. Yeah, but I'm not going to get too far into that. The rants we could go on. I know. I didn't realize a roll of quarters was so valuable back then. Apparently. Okay, back on the topic. So the amusement park that Snydow developed primarily catered to locals in the Mercer County area of West Virginia. Given that it is West Virginia, a lot of the families that visited the park were coal miner families. And as far as the attractions at the park... The park featured a Ferris wheel and a swing ride, and these are probably the main attractions and like the showiest rides at the park at the time. Uh, there may have been some other rides, but those are the two that you read about. Um, some other attractions at the park include a swimming pool with diving boards and slides, a racetrack, concession stands, dance halls, and cabins for overnight stays. I read somewhere also that the uh, swimming pool was more of a cement pond and not what we envision as a modern-day swimming pool. Hmm. So I don't know what exactly that looked like at the time, but it said cement pond. Other areas said swimming pool, but from what I understand, it was more of a cemented pond. So I don't think it was overly fancy, but I don't know what the standard was at that time either. Is that the pond that is currently on the land? Well, there's a lake and then there's a pond. Oh. So it is theirs currently, yeah. Hmm. It looks just like a pond now. It doesn't like look like clear water that you'd want to swim. It just looks like a pond. Interesting. Yeah. I also read, this is just more of a fun fact, not that important, but I read that at the time they rented wool bathing suits to swimmers for 15 cents. Ew. How would you like to swim around and walk around in wet wool? (laughs) And wool that had been worn and sweated in by somebody else? Yeah, it's like, I don't know if they're washing these things. They're like, ah, the pool water washes it. Yeah, absolutely. 15 cents. Yuck. Yeah. So during Snydell's ownership of the property, there were two reported drowning deaths in the pool. One boy had gotten his arm stuck in the drain pump, and they found him down there. I'm not certain how the other person drowned, but I know both of them were young children, and they both drowned in the pool. Another death on a property occurred on the swing ride in 1966. Apparently, while the young girl was on the swing ride, she was backed into by a soda delivery truck, and the impact killed her instantly. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's pretty brutal. That's, yeah, so many brutal I don't know why they have soda deliveries so close to the swing ride, but... Hmm. So from what I read, there were a total of six visitor deaths at the amusement park, although I couldn't really find any information on the other three. Mm. But, you know, it sounds like could have been more people drowned or injured from some of these rides at the time because I don't think they were very well regulated. No. The combination of tragedy along with a failed health inspection led the park to close its gates in 1967. And based on this, it sounds like the park probably wasn't ran so great between six people getting killed failing a health inspection, 
wool bathing suits that are probably infectious. Probably. And Smith Pond water that I'm imagining was not overly clean considering they filled a health inspection as well. So Yeah. All around does so not people sound could have like died from best. infections. I have no clue. Hmm. But had some issues. Sounds like it. All right, we're gonna fast forward again to nineteen eighty five. And this is when the property was purchased by a man named Gaylord White, who was a former employee at the park when it was uh, owned by the previous guy. Hmm. He reopened the amusement park in the summer of 1987. I read somewhere that when he bought the park, the old rides had actually been sold off, but he wanted to bring back some of these iconic rides, such as the swings and Ferris wheel. So they went out and bought these rides. And there was one interesting thing about the swings that they bought. So they purchased swings in New Jersey, brought it back to Lake Shawnee, got it all set up, only to look up the serial numbers and find it was the exact same swings that used to be there back in the day. That's crazy. Yeah, so what's the chances of that? Like, that's insane. That is insane. It's like the swings wanted to be there, some yeah. presence, maybe. <laughs> hmm. So despite Gaylord White's best efforts to bring the park back to life, it did not stay open very long. Due to increasing insurance rates, the park was forced to close in 1988. And being a businessman, White sought other uses for the property and decided to use it for fishing tournaments and off-road motorsports. One day in the early 1990s, construction workers were working on part of the property that was going to be either a mudbogging pit or a future housing development. And those are very different. And I found conflicting information, so I thought, I'll just say both. It was going to be something, but it doesn't really matter that much because it never became either of those. Huh. So they were working with this tract of land on that property and, you know, they're moving dirt around, digging up stuff, and they made some interesting findings. So while workers were digging in the area, they actually found Native American burial sites and numerous artifacts. Oh, no. After these findings, White decided it was best to discontinue their project and let the land stay as it is. And he definitely made the right call here because if we learned anything from horror movies and as we briefly discussed on your story you don't want to build houses or anything on top of dead bodies especially native american burial grounds oh, <laughs> just <absolutely>. a big <laughs> no-no yes oh my goodness it's like asking for a curse or something yes so following this discovery a team of archaeologists from nearby marshall university came out to the property to study the artifacts and burials over a three-year period over this time the researchers uncovered a total of 13 native american skeletons most of which were elderly and young children They determined that the skeletons had actually been there prior to European arrival. And according to one account, the archaeologists stopped digging when they found graves of children. But according to other accounts, their funding for the project dried up. And that's why they stopped after three years. Because I was curious, like, why three years? It seems some of those archaeological sites they dig for, I mean, decades. They just kind of keep going at it. But for some reason, they stopped after three years. Hmm. So despite stopping after three years and only finding those, I say only, but they found 13 bodies. Experts estimate there may be as many as 3,000 bodies buried there. Oh, my goodness. I don't know what the basis is for that, but I found that on multiple uh, locations that they said there might be as many as 3,000 bodies there. Wow. So it's a major burial ground. Yeah. And it's thought that the reason for this is perhaps the flu or some other disease struck the Shawnee tribe at the time. And in an effort to protect the rest of the tribe, they left the young and elderly behind or the people that would be more susceptible to die and get infected. They left them behind and then abandoned the land. So that's why there could be so many children and uh, elderly there and so many bodies in general. That's so sad. Because the land was basically vacated before the English settlers arrived. Although I think the Shawnee still you know, claimed it as theirs. They just weren't living there. They'd left it. 
That makes sense. They probably wanted to protect it because of all of their ancestors who were there. Right. Some people believe the natives cursed this land, either due to the death of many other tribal members or due to the land being taken over by settlers and turned into an amusement park, which, you know, could be seen as very disrespectful for the dead who'd been buried there long before the arrival of any English settlers. That would be an insult. Look at all these people having fun on top of your dead relatives. Right, flying airplanes on top of them. Who oh know, my who gosh, knows? yeah. It's the big no-no. Yes. In fact, a similar Shawnee curse was believed to have occurred just 150 miles north in the town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It was in this town that Shawnee tribal leader Chief Cornstalk was murdered in 1777 by American soldiers. It was thought that before he died, he put a curse on the land. In decades that followed, a series of tragic events occurred, including two fatal plane crashes, a toxic spill, and the most deadly coal mine disaster in U.S. history. Wow. So the Shawnee curse might be real. Maybe we'll have to look into that story, too. Yeah. So that pretty much covers the history, uh, but before I get into the ghost stories, I want to discuss the state of the property as it is today, just to sort of set a scene, because a lot of the the haunted stories we hear actually occur in more modern times, not like it back in the 1920s. So if you visit the property today, it's still privately owned by the family of Gaylord White, who I think passed away, I don't have it written down, but I think he passed away somewhere around 2010 to 2015 time frame. But it's still owned by his family. I believe his son is the one that runs it today. Today, as I mentioned, they offer paranormal tours. It's not an amusement park in any way. Just, you know, another place you can do a paranormal tours. Hmm. And if you visit the property, you'll still find remnants of the past, though. This includes the iconic Ferris wheel, swings, a concession stand, and an old school bus. Everything there's basically as it was back in the day and has been taken over by nature to some degree If you look at pictures of the Ferris wheel and swings, they're just covered in vines. Everything's rusted. The buildings like the concession stand are decaying. So I think you kind of get the idea. It's sort of looks like a scene from Walking Dead. Mm, I was thinking Silent Hill, but yes. Yeah. So like when you look at pictures, that's like the best way to describe it. Just like imagine when they show up to some of these ghost towns, basically, and how it looks. Where nature's like taken over. Yes. Yes. It's like nature's taking the park back. (laughs) Creepy. All right, on that note, I'm going to get into the paranormal stuff. Since we were just talking about Gaylord White, I'm going to start with one of his haunted experiences while he owned the property. One day while White was on a tractor mowing the field, he kept feeling a weight on his shoulders. He didn't know what it was, so he turned around, and the little girl who died on the swings was sitting on the back of his tractor wearing a pink dress with ruffled sleeves. He claims he wasn't scared. The only thing he could think of at the time was... Well, if you like this tractor so much, I'm going to give it to you. And that's exactly what he did. He got off the tractor and just left it there in the field. And it's still there to this day. (laughs) I kind of like that. He's just like, sees a ghost. And he's like, nope, just leaves. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if the ghost was disappointed that it didn't move anymore, though. I don't know. He was under the impression that she just wanted it. But yeah, maybe she likes it to move. Who knows? (laughs) She was probably happy she finally had a ride to ride on after so long. Maybe. Maybe that's what she was looking for. A thrill ride. She's like, these swings don't work anymore. Exactly. Yeah, it could be. When Gaylord White worked at the park during his younger days prior to owning it, he said he always had a feeling of someone behind him touching his shoulder or his arm, along with the feeling of an unexplained presence. He also reported hearing what he explains as the sound of chanting on the property. Hmm. It turns out he wasn't the only person to hear chanting. It's actually a fairly common occurrence at the park. 
In fact, when the team from Ghost Lab, which is a paranormal investigation show that ran on the Discovery Channel, and I just watched it recently, well, when they visited the property, they obtained recordings of the chanting, and I watched this episode, and the recording was surprisingly clear. It 100% sounded like chanting to me, like, without a doubt, which is kind of odd because most of the time on these shows, they hear something, they record it, and they're like, oh my god, did you hear that? It sounded like they said my name, or they said, get out. But then everyone else at home is watching it, like, yeah, I didn't hear anything. It sounds like a door closed. It sounds like nothing, you know? It's all garbled and hard to yeah. make out. Yeah. Well, this was like clear. Like it sounded like chanting. Like I couldn't mistake it for anything else. Like it, it just sounded like chanting. Oh, man. So if it was legit, you know, I mean, it sounded like it. Hmm. So that was pretty cool. And if you do want to check it out, it was on Ghost Lab Season 2, Episode 5, and it was titled Theme Park of Death. If you're interested, I'd definitely check out the recording. Yeah, I want to hear it now. And as you probably pieced together... It's thought that the chanting is Native American chanting from all the bodies that had been buried there and the tragedies that unfolded. That makes sense. While the Ghost Lab team was there, they also tried to antagonize the spirits in hope of getting a reaction. Never a good idea. No, it's just a bad idea in general. It's kind of like putting runways on top of bodies. (laughs) So their theory was that the building of an amusement park on top of the Native American burials angered the spirits. Seems like a good theory. Mm Mm-hmm. So they decided to bring in some carnival attractions of their own, like bounce houses, a dunk tank, uh, they played carnival music, and their hope was that this would further anger the spirits and elicit some sort of response they could record. That's so insulting. I know, oh right? My I gosh. can't believe they did that. Serious. But the only solid evidence they were able to get during the whole episode was the chanting. They really didn't get much from bringing in all the carnival rides, but hmm. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. That's really interesting. Yeah, I don't know if I would have done that, but whatever. These guys are probably going to be cursed for decades, though, is what I was thinking. They took it to the next level. (laughs) Like they went so far above and beyond what they should have done to try and antagonize the spirits. Let's reenact a carnival on top of sacred burial grounds. Yes. Oh my gosh. It's a bad idea. Yeah. I wonder if they are cursed now because. Probably. It would be fair. A curse. (laughs) Aside from Ghost Lab, there have been numerous other paranormal investigations filmed at the site. In fact, there was another show from the Discovery Channel out there filming one day, and one of the investigators got stuck in an old ticket booth and went into an all-out panic to the point that she was taken to a local hospital. Wow. And from what I read, the door in the ticket booth wasn't even locked, but somehow it was just stuck shut. Hmm. And I read somewhere that the door didn't even have a lock on the inside or outside that could be locked. So somehow she was stuck in there and just went into a full-on panic mode. I would probably panic as well. I do not like that. Yeah. I wouldn't like that either. Maybe not as bad as being stuck in Mammoth Cave in the dark, but true, still pretty bad. Yeah. In October 2005, the park gained national attention when ABC Network's Scariest Places on Earth filmed there. Ah, uh, I love that one. That's we watch it all one, the time. Yeah. During the filming, the network hired a psychic to visit and evaluate the park. The psychic refused to stay on the property due to the spiritual energy being too strong. Additionally, the film crew refused to enter the park alone at night due to eerie feelings, which I don't blame them for that. Who wouldn't have eerie feelings? And I wouldn't want to go there at night either. Absolutely not. So I have some other paranormal claims I want to read that are just from visitors at the park, not from like a famous show or anything like that. Let's start with the bus that sits on the property. I should note, it's like it looks like a school bus, but it's one of those buses that's been converted into living quarters like all the young people want to do these days. Hmm. So it has like a couch, TV, and all that in it. Oh, nice. The former owner, Gaylord White, before he passed away, he would just hang out in there. I don't know if it was sort of like his office or spot to relax between events and all that. Interesting. 
yeah, he used to spend time in the bus. And it's been reported by some guests that they've seen a full apparition of White in the school bus. Not much else on it, really. That was it. But people have seen an apparition in the bus, and it's believed that it's most likely him. I guess he really liked the park. Yeah. And there's also been paranormal experiences with the Ferris wheel. Visitors have reported seeing the full apparition of a male sitting upright in cart number 10. Shadow figures have also been spotted on the ride, and there's reportedly security footage, although I can't find it, of a safety bar on the ride unfastening in the middle of the night while no one was around. And I did read somewhere, too, that White was, uh, he was very particular about, like, the safety in the Ferris wheel ride, which is probably good if you're a theme park owner, especially given that park's reputation. Absolutely. But some of his family thought maybe it's the ghost of him, you know, trying to fix the safety harnesses and stuff like that. Aw. Apparently, they have footage of it. I I would like to see it. I just couldn't find it. Now I'm going to talk about the swings, because the swings are reportedly one of the most haunted areas of the park, and the area where people consistently see the presence of something. So numerous visitors have reported seeing the ghost of the little girl who was killed on the swings. Some describe the girl in a pink dress. Others say a girl with a red ribbon in her hair. And some even report seeing a girl in a blood-covered dress. Hmm. In addition to seeing the girl on the swings, visitors have reported cold spots. Visitors have reported cold spots near the swing seats. The cold spots, they said, are just above the seat, kind of like where a person would be sitting. And people have also reportedly seen the seats move on their own hmm. when there's like no wind. Like swaying back and forth? Yeah. Ew. Creepy swing sets. I feel like that's always like a, a horror movie go-to at some point in the movie. Like, let's have a creepy swing set. Well, you remember the intro to Are You Afraid of the Dark? It zoomed in on a swing set and it had the creepy remember. creaking noise. Mm. The intro to that show used to scare the bejesus out of me. I haven't watched it for like... A while. I don't want to give away my age, but it's been a while. Well, we have to find the classic one from the 90s. Oh, yeah. I forgot. They did remake it, didn't they? Yeah, they did. But the remake was good. Yeah. So I have some more generalized claims from the park. And some of these are things I've already discussed, but I just kind of want to rattle these off uh, just so you have a full feel of what haunted occurrences have happened here. Hmm. So some of these more generalized claims include people hearing the sound of footsteps, chanting, children giggling, orbs, disembodied voices, and the rides moving on their own. So, you know, the usual. Some visitors reportedly will leave dolls and toys for the children who died there. And I looked at some of the pictures, and I won't lie, some of these toys that people left behind are pretty creepy in their own right. Oh, no. They really add to the haunted vibe of the park. Hmm. One of the dolls that they showed, I'm sure they showed it for this reason. It looked a whole lot like the actual Annabelle doll, like the haunted one. Oh, no, a Raggedy Ann doll? yeah. I mean, it was a raggedy. I guess a lot of dolls look like that, but I thought the fact that it's that doll and it's in a haunted park, it's like someone did that on purpose. Somebody probably did do that on purpose. I'm sure there's still a lot of people that collect those dolls these days and would love to have it at home in a in a box, probably. But <laughs> yeah, maybe if they weren't creeped out by it. So there's a lot of toys there. So if you do go visit, maybe you should bring a toy for the uh, children that passed away there. Hmm, like a teddy bear, something cute. Yeah, some, maybe something cuter. Well, that pretty much wraps up the history and haunts of Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. But before I close out, I wanted to mention some of the shows that the park has been featured on because it has received national attention and been featured on a number of shows. These include, as I mentioned earlier, ABC's Scariest Places on Earth. And they actually designated the park as one of the 10 most haunted places in the world. Wow. And as I mentioned earlier, the Discovery Channel's Ghost Lab visited. Travel Channel's Most Terrifying Places in America did a show there. And History Channel's The Unexplained, which I also really like, did a show there. 
in more recent years, Portals to Hell was filmed there. I just saw on my notes, I typed Portals to Hello, which I'm pretty sure it's spell check. It's not near as scary. Portals to Hello. This is how you say hello in three languages. But yeah, Portals to Hell with Jack Osborne was filmed there as well, which I haven't actually watched that one yet, but I keep it keeps popping up on my radar as I'm researching, so I have to watch it sometime. Definitely. And I think I'm going to end it there with everything that pretty much covers it all. That was good. That was Thank really you. creepy and interesting. Everyone likes a haunted amusement park. I wish there was a haunted or possessed clown there. That would have made it better, it but you clowns know, it doesn't get much creepier than building stuff on Native American burial grounds and having the repercussions absolutely i will never try to personally test out any curses that i hear of always be respectful and pay your dues if you visit anywhere like that and if you're buying a property always look at the fine print and make sure there are no graves or native american burials or anything of the nature yes just like that bankrupt leasing thing on the last one that i was talking about yeah it said specifically no graves burial sites or historic relics exactly All right. On that note, thanks for listening to another episode of Southern Hospitality. Be sure to tune in next week for another round of Spooky Stories in the South. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.